As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. Today's episode of Android's Dungeon. Conflict in Eastern Europe. No, no, not reality. It's fictional, and really nobody's getting hurt, so it's kind of a good conflict, and everyone had a good time, I think. And also, a grim, dark, cybernetic future. Who's real? Who's fake? What are memories? A small talk about Blade Runner. Stay tuned. Welcome to Android Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of the University of Guelph. Uh, I am Jack. And I'm Kayla. And I am apologizing for A, being congested. Thank you, Spring. That has managed to show up in October. And I'm also apologizing for the board making strange scratchy noises because, uh, you know, it's just what it does. So if you hear stuff that you don't like, I'm sorry. But I can't help it. It's not my fault in either circumstance. Although I didn't take an allergy pill, so I guess I could have done something about that. But could have. Didn't. It could have. Didn't. Um, Wait, Jack. Where's Joel? Joel? <sighs> Did you leave him in the car? I don't know. I might have cracked a window. You may have? I'm not sure. Uh, listeners, please, can if anyone is near the University of Guelph or maybe downtown, can you look around for a car with a... Uh, a small man scrambling around inside, <laughs> probably panting, or probably playing some sort of game of diplomacy on his phone, and smash the window uh, and give him some water or something because he's probably very hungry and thirsty. Jack, but, stop. I remembered where Joel is. Where is he? He's not even in Ontario at all. Uh, if we have any listeners outside of Ontario, can you please look for <laughs> you look through every car you see to see if there's a, <laughs> a man? I'm pretty sure he's not actually trapped in a car. Oh, okay. That was confusing, though. Yeah. He's, uh, I think he's uh, out west. Is that where he's supposed yeah, to be? Yeah, he is. He's visiting his family a little bit, doing a little bit of work, going to the great state of Washington, mm. hanging out in the cool province of BC. Uh, cool is extremely subjective in this case. Are we referring to temperature? Or are we referring to, uh, you know, the, the John Travolta dancing in Pulp Fiction cool? Uh, the latter. Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's like your opinion, man, about BC. The point is, I'm here. Joel's not. Mm. Okay. Well, whatever. We didn't need Joel anyway. He was just dead weight. He was holding us back. (laughs) Excuse us, listeners. Jack is having a meltdown because he really misses Joel. Uh, Kayla, what have you been playing recently? Uh, A lot of great stuff. Primarily Scythe. Okay. Um, We've talked about Scythe a little bit on this show. (laughs) You just told me we've never talked about Scythe before on the show. Oh, I was joking. I was, I thought you <laughs> understood <laughs> I that. mean, I listen to every show diligently. I'm new to this. <laughs> um, So let's just get this out of the way. Like, let's go early into a quick explanation of it. Uh, Kayla, explain Scythe and explain why we have it and why we play it. Uh, I don't really know how to explain Scythe. It is an alternate world. Mm-hmm. Alternate history. A, alternate history, sorry. I think it's set in like the 1920s. Uh, Post-World War uh, one kind of era. Sure. 
Okay, so like I said, 1920s. It wasn't a correction. It was uh, an attempt to expand upon your original idea. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so in Scythe, there are a number of different factions, and you are a faction, and that faction has special abilities, and you combo that faction with a player mat, which also has special abilities. Mm-hmm. And together, you try to take over the world. Yeah, and are these factions, are they, oh, you're playing these space aliens and I'm playing the robots from under the Earth and... I mean, Jack, come on, it's an alternate history, but it's also not set on Mars. Okay. It's still set on Earth. We're not terraforming. We are not terraforming. <clears throat> there are, like, bears and tigers that are your friends, mm-hmm. so it's kind of different than what you would normally expect. There's also big robots, but I also don't think that's that far-fetched either. No. Mechs. Yeah, the mechs. So, but they're, they're all based, though. The factions are all based on um, actual sort of cultures in Eastern Europe. So you have yeah. the, the Saxons, which are the Germans, mm-hmm. and you have Polonia, the Rusviets, oh. uh, the rest, and going through like every different sort of, mm-hmm. like grab a slice of Europe, and you're going to find representation in Scythe, sort of, uh, for the most part, at least. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I think we've, we've mentioned this a little bit before, but everyone knows Scythe is 100% just uh, risk, right? You just check dice, you, you crash your mechs into each other, and whoever rolls better wins, correct? I really wish the listeners could see my face because you just explained everything it's not. What? Are you sure? I'm pretty sure, Jack. We mm. just played. Mm. I know I know what's happening. Okay. Well, what are you doing it? So inside <clears throat> your player mat has uh, to start four sets of actions that you can do. Mm-hmm. You cannot do two of the same things in a row. And there is a top row action and a bottom row action. And so in most cases you can do or sorry, you basically can always do the top row action. Sometimes you have to pay for it. Sometimes it's free. Sometimes it might cost something else like power or popularity. But you can basically always do the top row action. You have to have really screwed up not to be able to do a yeah. top row action. I don't know somehow. why you couldn't do a top row action. Well, maybe you spent your money poorly or maybe you had zero popularity or zero power. Uh, yeah, I've never seen that happen. No. And then a bottom row action is also available to you, uh, but it's usually a little bit more difficult to achieve in that it usually requires resources mm-hmm. of some sort. So... You might need food or steel or oil or wood. Yeah, and each of these corresponds to something else. And by, like, you use the oil to upgrade, which mm-hmm. is one of the greatest parts of the game. And we've talked about this before on the show, but it's uh, everything starts off with a bunch of cubes on the top row. And your actions are reduced on the top row until you upgrade, in which they get better. And the stuff, you move the cube to the bottom of the board, and your things get cheaper. And part of the visceral thrill or the tangible thrill of Scythe is that the boards are, the player mats or the uh, production boards are actually double thick cardboard. And on top of the gorgeous artwork and everything else, um, you, when you move this cube from the top to the bottom, <laughs> it, it sounds so silly and it, it is cube pushing in a literal sense, but your your stuff gets better. It is a ve- it is a real sense of upgrade in the world. And it's the, the uh, Stone Mare Games did a great job in sort of implementing this idea. And then wood you use to turn into structures, which have, I'd say they're the weakest part of the the, the bottom board. They just, the structures just feel kind of lame. Yeah. They don't really do very much. In most cases, they don't do a lot. 
I mean, the bonus is, is that they do can hold a hex, like can yeah. claim a hex if you don't have any workers there. And at the end of the game, <coughs> the number of hexes that you have is worth money and money is the victory points for the game. Yeah. And usually the bonuses kind of revolve, at least I haven't played the game enough to go through the bonuses, but I think most of them usually revolve around building your buildings in certain spots, like next to lakes or mm-hmm. next to farms or next to mines and so on. So yeah. they're, they're very important worth tons of points, but they're just, they don't feel as exciting. They don't feel as exciting as a mech, which suddenly gives your mech and your hero, is that what we're calling them? Hero, Your leader, character, whatever, character, leader. Uh, special powers. Mm-hmm. And the mechs are what really pull people into this. So let's go step back a little bit further for a second here before we go too far. Scythe was, <clears throat> I'd say, before the current crop, before we hit this sort of, um, I don't know if we were in a bubble right now, Kickstarter board games. But before you had, um, I think, Kingdom Death Monster and uh, Massive Darkness and Dark Souls and uh, there's even a Resident Evil 2 board game coming out. All these like licensed games sort of, well, not the first two, but uh, Gloomhaven was another one before this or after this. But Scythe was the first game on Kickstarter, I think, really kind of grabbed people with these and I, I mean, more than have to be corrected, but it built this buzz and made tons of money on Kickstarter. It was, the artwork is incredible. Wait, wait, Jack. Did you kickstart it? <laughs> uh, K- Kayla has basically grabbed this, a scar on my, my belly and just kind of pried it open and is fiddling around with my guts because there was a time when you asked me and I said, I love Kickstarter. Kickstarter's great. I think it's so much fun. I love the idea of it. And then if you'd asked me six months later, I would say, Kickstarter is the dumbest thing in the world. Anyone who backs something on Kickstarter is a dummy and deserves to have their money taken from them. Um, And that was because, I I think I've talked about this, is that I got burned on software. There was a time when I saw a cool computer game concept and somebody Kickstarter and they say, oh, just 10 bucks, just $15. And it's like, okay, and then we'll have something in the future. I think of the probably 25 things I may have backed over time, some for a little bit of money, some for more. I'd say only about... I'd say like a four of those have come out and maybe two have been half decent and it's just a fool in his money and it's it's my fault for backing them but when I saw this board game Kickstarter I thought there's no way it looks too good it looks it, it's hitting all those notes and it, it, all I see are these mechs and the the art looks like oh it, it's it's designed to trick Jack I thought it was a trap I thought somebody put pepperoni and cigarettes under a <laughs> under a net and they were <laughs> looking for me and I didn't back it and it ended up being the hottest game of the year. And everyone said, it's not its not an excellent game, but it's a very good game. And I missed out on backing it. <laughs> and that's my story about not backing Scythe on Kickstarter. Sad, sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then so, you had to pay for it like a fool. Well, I mean, you're paying for it on Kickstarter, but you're well, you're buying it like a plebeian, you know? Different. Having to go to the store, having to wait for stuff to come back in stock. Yeah, having to, yeah. <clears throat> having to wait for the expansion to show up. I could have had those metal coins, too, I think, if as part yeah. of it, whatever. Huh. A fool and his money still parted, apparently. But uh, anyway, so it was a Kickstarter game, and um, that's where a lot of this buzz came from, and that... Uh, and for a while there, the supply was so limited that it would show up. You'd get in, you can sign up on these websites for notifications when things are back in stock. And uh, like, let's say Board Game Bliss, you get a notification, Scythe is back in stock. Check the website a few minutes later, gone. Because people just, like every stock, that, or every copy came in, sold instantly. But uh, so very popular game. And um, I think we've gotten a, a few plays out of it so far, Kayla, since we picked up about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe, well, not quite even a year ago. But um, who did we teach it to? So we taught it to <coughs> our good friends, Natasha and Justin. Mm-hmm. They love board games. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but they have two different, very different board game styles. Natasha doesn't necessarily like fighting. And uh, Justin really does like fighting. <laughs> so they are two very different people yep. when it comes to what they generally usually like about board games. But they also probably haven't been exposed to that many board games. Mm-hmm. We've ex- been exposing them to games. Cyclades is probably one of Justin's favorite games in the entire world. Yeah. And fair enough. I love Cyclades. You don't have to tell me um, about that. But I, I guess Cyclades, that it's very, everything you do in Cyclades is high conflict. The bidding, mm-hmm. like any auction game, especially one as ruthless as Cyclades, high conflict. You're bumping yeah. people off. You're spending money. You're taking territories. Absolutely. And it kind of breeds this, this lingering contempt <laughs> in people. Well, and then we also taught them... Kemet, which is all fighting. Kemet's even angrier than Cyclades yeah. if it's popular. Yeah, so exactly. And then we throw a scythe at them, and there was definitely a few times while we were teaching them that Justin was like, "I want to fight." Yeah. Yeah, but it's not. It's not great. Yeah. You don't you don't want to fight? Yeah, but I want to fight. No, no, no. You don't. You really don't. Yeah, and that there was, are better ways. Yeah, exactly. And that's there are better ways. And that's something that's hard to get through people's heads when you're coming from, I would never teach Komet and Scythe back to back because it's just like, <laughs> it's basically driving a race car over a cliff versus, I don't know, going for a nice little walk in the woods. It's, <laughs> you can't. Well, yes, I would say Scythe is very idyllic, especially <coughs> when we enforce our house rule of having to describe the picture on X. Ex- Expedition. Encounter cards. Encounter cards. I don't know why I want to call them expeditions. Well, it's similar things. Like, so, so in Scythe, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. And one of which is there are these little sort of, they look like compass uh, points all across the board. And if you move your leader character, and I should, I've sort of touched on it, but all these, your, your leader characters are all unique. Um, they're all coded to your faction and they all look incredible. The, mo- the sculpting on them is great. And they're the all. The pieces are amazing. Yeah, yeah. The, the components in this game. Minus the coins, because Jack didn't get the metal coins. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Kayla. Um, mm-hmm. Minus the coins, everything is incredible. And even the coins are pretty good, the cardboard ones. Yeah, they are actually pretty good. And uh, so you move your character onto the one of these points, and you have an encounter. And there are these lovely big uh, cards that I almost feel like getting sleeves for. I almost want to, but they don't get that much fondling. They so. don't get that much fondling. Uh, I think Lost Cities would probably be the same card size, so they probably have some. Anyway, uh, so you can click, th- open them, you you hit the spot, your character stops, and you draw a card from the top of this deck. And on it is this gorgeous picture uh, that goes can along. Can we mention that the artwork in this game is amazing? Amazing. This I forget the game and the guy's last name, but Jakob is the, the artist, and his stuff is so good they're licensing it. I'm seeing there's this kind of vaguely shovelware-looking title coming out on Steam in a bit, and it's using the scythe artwork, but it's Jacob's artwork for marketing purposes. Uh, but anyway, so you pick up this card and you look at it, and there's this gorgeous scene that's very evocative, and it's always something kind of going on in it. And you have to describe, in our group, the rule is you have to describe the scene. And unless things are dragging, like at the end of the night or something, you got to read it. And you're given three options. The first one is always the nicest thing, and um, you always get like a meager reward. The second one is always uh, so-so, and it usually involves you paying something, like a bit of cash for stuff. And the third one's the mean one, where you do something nasty to whatever group you've come across, like chasing boards into a village or stealing from sleeping people or something. And it costs you popularity, but you get a lot of stuff. And um, that's our thing. So you go through, you grab these encounters, and they're very good, and you should always be chasing them. And in fact, one of the characters uh, on the board, their ability is they get to do two of these options. 
And when we were playing, I felt like Justin really did a lot. Like he mm-hmm. was hoovering up these yeah. exp- uh, exp- or, um, encounters. You have me confused now. He definitely used his faction ability to his benefit. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, is, so did I, but... Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was going to say is that everyone's faction is a unique ability. So um, the... And they all kind of break the game in some way. Not break the game, but they break a rule. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest ones is uh, Natasha's faction, which was Rusviet, they're allowed to do the same action twice, which no one else is allowed to do, but allows them to rush whatever they want to do. So if they want to really, like, produce yeah. resources, they can do it over and over again. It can be pretty powerful. Rusviet was the faction I had for my very first game, and I think that I... I've used that quite a bit. You're supposed to. That's absolutely. And it's an easy thing to abuse because you're, it's built right into it. It's so simple to do. And I've heard, I've read online that some people complain that patriotic. So patriotic Rusviet is broken. If you get that board and you know what you're doing, you can. it's a, a guaranteed win. But the way it works is all the bottom boards are labeled as something. And they're all better at certain things than others. And by better, I mean the amount of resources that do it are cheaper and you get more money from it. And at the end of the game, the only things that matter is money. All your goals are turned into money. All the money you've accumulated throughout the game turn into money, 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 money. And that's what you want to do. So every time you're spending a dollar, you're spending a victory point essentially, and you should always be maximizing it. So your bottom board, and this is something that, and I'm gonna go into, I just want to say a quick tip, because it's taken me, this was a spoiler, Jack won for the very first time, and we've had this game for almost a year. We've played it probably six, seven times, more maybe. And why are you making that face at me, Kayla? Barely one, just <laughs> for the record. <laughs> it was close. We'll get to that in it a second. It was real tight. It was very tight. Um, but this is the first time I think I actually understood the game and understood what I was doing. And I'm just going to go out and say it right now. For anyone who's listening who's maybe struggling with Scythe and not understanding what to do, I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you what I did differently, and that will change your game. Just look at your board. Look at the, the thing that gets cheaper and gets you lots of money and just keep doing it. Even if you have to trade for it, always be upgraded or always take something the first turn that lets you do the bottom, the second turn, and turn it into the engine. Don't worry about getting mechs out just because you want to get mechs out. If it costs you too much and you don't have easy access steel, don't worry about it. Don't build buildings if you don't have easy access to the wood or it's too expensive. Focus on the easy things and do not re- neglect enlisting because you're getting stuff every time somebody to the left or right of you or you does that action. And that's what I focused on and it worked out very nicely. But that's the that was the main hurdle for me that I didn't quite get was that I was trying to do a bunch of different things when there's really only mm-hmm. two things you should be doing the entire time and then you branch out as you get better at them. But mm-hmm. anyway. Because you can't do everything. And it is at its heart an engine building game. Yeah. It's a dry euro. It's a you're you're did you look at anyone else's board the entire time? No, I didn't care about anyone else. Yeah, so it's it's borderline multiplayer solitaire unless mm-hmm. you get to a level where you're just like maybe like sickly yeah. style where you're really reading the board and what people are doing, but sure. I haven't played the game nearly enough to get there. I feel like that's not super important, especially well at this level anyways, and there isn't there shouldn't be that much conflict. Mm-hmm. I, there is there can be, but especially when there's more players in the game. Exactly. You're all tight and all bidding or all trying to get the same hexes with different resources yeah yeah and that's it i think it's at at four players there should be almost no conflict Mm -hmm. beyond somebody trying to grab a star or maybe if you've been lazy and you got a big ball of resources in a spot and somebody just swoops in and tries to take them from you which is your fault for doing it and maybe being a position or vulnerable position i would have done that to you if i was closer to you you what resource what all my grain yeah (laughs) that that was worth tons of points i think that was that was a good objective to have too. Although yours was, what was yours? 
hit twenty dollars. That's a great objective too. It's like you're gonna be there eventually. It's just yeah. how could you not have twenty bucks? Well, the only thing is that some of the objectives are actually really hard to reach. Some so of them, you look at it and I'm never doing this. Right. So there's okay. There's a lot of stuff going on inside. We can't explain it all. Yeah. But one of the things that you get at the beginning of the game <clears> is you get two objective cards, and they are these two things that you have to you can they're optional yeah achieve if you achieve them you get a star yeah and stars the way to win the game well mm, sure. and and the game excuse me sorry yeah stars are the way to end the game so everyone can place up to six stars for different things so like getting all your men on the board getting enlisting everyone getting mm-hmm. all your upgrades winning two fights um doing your objectives getting all your mechs out there there's some different options but whoever gets the six stars first ends the game Stars are worth uh, money at the end, so it's good. But mm-hmm. just because you have six stars on the board and you end the game doesn't mean you're going to win, yep. as Jack almost found out. But <laughs> I have found out in the past, the, though, too. Some of the objectives are actually really difficult. They might be like have $20 uh, and no mechs deployed or no upgrades. And like, yeah. well, you're actually, if you're trying to reach that objective, you're just kind you're, of you're, hog-tying the rest of the things that you need to exactly. do. So it doesn't make sense. Sometimes you just, I have <clears throat> played before and just completely ignored my objective because I was like, this is not going to benefit me. This is actually going to hold me back. And this is, and what Kayla's mentioned here is kind of important. You're not required to do these objectives. It's not like you can't win the game unless you do them. You can okay. look at them and easily say, this isn't happening and just biff them and never look at them again yeah. because there are, how many stars? I was or how many different that board? I feel like there are somewhere between eight and ten different ways yeah, to yeah. get so, stars. And objectives are just one. Yeah. Just one. So your other things are probably going to, your the, the other things that give you <laughs> stars, like doing your upgrades, enlisting all your people, pull, putting all your mechs, all yeah. four of them out yeah. onto the board, are things you're probably going to do anyways. So if an objective doesn't fit into your plan, might as well get rid of it. Exactly. And that's one of these cool things about Scythe too, is that everything you do, Similar cyclades in a sense. I, it's weird I'm talking about that so much, but maybe just because of Justin. <laughs> Probably. The, but um, everything you do in Scythe, you should be marching towards victory. Every time you put out a mech, you're one quarters of the way towards a star. Every time you upgrade, you're one uh, eighth of the way there, and so on. And Which is a really neat sense of progress with the game, because every time you do something, you should ostensibly be, or you should uh, be getting closer to winning the game, mm-hmm. or at least ending the game. And like Kale mentioned, stars are worth points in the game, but not a guarantee of winning. And the way it works is you have this popularity track on the left. And the higher the popularity, and there are three sections of it. And as you get into different sections, all your different goals are, or all your different things are worth more points. So it starts off at like four, five, six, three, four, five, so on. So you want to be as popular as possible. And there's even a star for being as popular as possible. There's a star for being as powerful as possible. Which is interesting because when we played, everyone... Uh, except Natasha, I think, but she was close, capped out on... She shouldn't I have used all her power there. Like you told her not it. to do that. I, but I mean, she didn't listen to yeah. me. That's fine. But uh, we, we've never seen that before where everyone yeah. uh, was capped out on power and Seemed everyone got easy. the star for that. It was simple. It was so mm-hmm. simple, especially for me for some reason, but it's because I was bolstering me too. constantly. It seemed so easy for me to get tons and tons of power. Everything I did got power. Yeah. Something that I'll mention, maybe the last kind of mechanic we should mention of the game mm-hmm. before we spend our whole hour talking about it, <laughs> is uh, the factory at the center of the oh, board. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So in the games I've paid, played in the past, I kind of ignored the factory just because I felt like there was so much else going on. And mm-hmm. I feel like that was a mistake because the I didn't factory go to the factory this game. It's super cool. And, and that's fine. But so something that Justin, who we're our friend who we taught how to play, this is their first time playing. Mm -hmm. He basically went straight to the factory. So you have to take your hero or your character to the factory. He's the only one that can go there. 
once you get to the factory, you get to choose from a couple of cards. The first person there gets best choice because there's a limited number of them mm -hmm. based on the number of players. There's in the always going to be one more than the players there, so everyone's always going to get a choice at least. Sure. So what the factory cards represent is another option, another action option that you can add to your board. Mm -hmm. So Justin's was great. Um, I think he I can't remember what he got to do, but it was it was a good one, and I thought, oh my god, that's it was, so cool. It was the one where, as a top row action, you can either enlist or upgrade. Right. I think it only cost you a dollar, or was it free? It might have. I think it was a dollar. It doesn't matter. And then the bottom row is you can move a character twice. Yeah. So after I saw Justin's, I was like, well, hello, factory, <laughs> and I headed right over there, and I got one because. Uh, mine was great. I got to go up to popularity and move someone twice. Oh, that's how you got all that popularity so quickly. Also, I'm just really popular. Um, Debate. Um, but I, no, I, I only use that card a couple times. Really? I actually just happened to get popularity from various other things, from encounters yeah. and whatever else I was doing. I had my upgrade, my popularity upgrade pretty early on too. Mm -hmm. And I was getting popularity from enlisting people and people doing the actions on either side. Oh, okay. So the factory is something that I ignored in the past, but I feel like I would not do that again because it can be beneficial, especially if you're the first person there. You get to choose whatever you want. <clears throat> and at the end of the game, which we kind of mentioned this earlier, one of the other ways to get money or points mm -hmm. is based on the number of hexes that you are currently um, in control of. In control of, And the factory is worth three. Mm -hmm. And that's where Justin ended up at the end of the game. Yeah, and... Uh, I think it was a bit to the detriment because he could have spread it a bit more, but he was in a tough position because if he tries to get more, he's splitting his forces, and I would have taken the factory yeah. from him. So he held on to it, and good for him. Um, but as you'll see in the game, there's this you, there's this experience of this rush around the end because when you hit five stars or four stars and you start to look at other players' boards where they could possibly get two stars on a turn, it's like, oh, sh the game's going to end soon. Mm -hmm. So now i got to got to spread out. And something else about the game, too, is we've talked about the lack of conflict. And the game does almost everything in its power to stop you or, like, discourage fighting because it costs you power, um, which is unless you've capped out at 18, you want to try to be always marching towards it. And um, you never lose those units. So if you start a fight in somebody else's base, they just go back a couple squares and they can be or hexes and they can be right in your face next time. And if you win a fight, you get a star. Great. And if you push them away and there's any resources where they were, you get those resources. But one of the problems of the game is that, uh, or one of the problems with fighting in the game is that if they have any workers where you've started a fight, or if you scare away a worker who's just on its own hex, just doing its own thing, you lose popularity for every worker there, unless you're the one um, faction that can upgrade something where you don't lose points for doing that. But that's only one faction with one ability. Happened to be Justin. Which happened to be Justin, which mm -hmm. was frustrating. But... Um, you you really do not want to be starting fights willy-nilly because mm -hmm. it costs you popularity. And unless you're the Saxons, which are the... the And I think they're t a lot of people say they're the worst faction in the, board, in the game. Um, very low win percentage. But they're designed around ending the game before anyone else can get started because they have an unlimited amount of stars they can get from fighting. So their whole thing is starting fights with people and beating them. And So on that note... I'll just mention that in this particular game, I think Jack made almost a critical error mm -hmm. in the fact that to end the game, he started a fight mm -hmm. with Justin on a hex that had a worker on it. And he didn't even, he didn't notice the worker. That's the problem. It is blended in. It blended in, whatever it was, white shirt, whatever you want <laughs> to be. But he was in the top tier of the popularity and that fight dropped him. He was right at the bottom I of the I was right on the tier. knife edge, yeah. So he had to drop one in popularity, put him down to the uh, level below. Yeah. Which meant he only beat me by four dollars, which is really nothing. <laughs> Kill saucy that it was a four dollar 
difference. And well, if you had been on the popularity tier above, it would not have been. It that would close. not have been as close. You probably would have had a hundred dollars. Mm, I don't know about that. It would have been. I would have had. I would have been in the '90s for sure, which yeah. would have been a really cool thing to say. But. Um, it, but it, it was a tight game all around. Justin and Natasha did great. They were in the 60s. In the, I, I never cracked 60. I don't think I've ever hit 60 oh, points I did my game. first game. Oh, 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 oh that's nice. Uh, they played really well. And we'll get into this in a second. But um, the, the, the fact that I started a fight and scared away a worker that dropped me down to a, a tier below in the popularity thing, to level two popularity, uh, could have cost me the game. And it would have been, I would have cried if that happened. It would have been very upsetting. And I would have laughed. Um, but it's something you have to be aware of because mm -hmm. the game, again, discourages you from just, like, running around mm -hmm. being a bully, punching people, unless you don't care. Because if you're the Saxons, you can expect to have zero popularity, uh, and that's fine because you're going to try to do other things. And you're going to focus on getting these power cards, which are for fighting, or if you're playing the faction I was, it counts as a wild resource once a turn, which is very useful. But every race, I'd say, or every faction has their own pros and cons and well not really cons necessarily but all their different things yeah. that they do differently um so the last thing i want to talk about is that teaching this game um was i found it more cumbersome than i'm accustomed to and it could have been later in the evening and maybe people were not as sharp and maybe i wasn't feeling as sharp but for me teaching scythe uh we were working together on this one it, it, to me it felt like there was a lot to say, and it just felt like tons to kind of go through. And I was struggling a little bit with how to explain things in a coherent way, because even after we did it, we started, there were still a lot of questions about stuff we'd already explained and made me think, why did I even bother? We well, could have just done it on the cuff. Or It's hard to explain as you go. I think it's a lot easier, and I wanted to do this, but you rejected my idea. I think it's a lot easier if you one-on-one -on -one take someone through their... Uh, player map because the player mats are all different. That's it doesn't make a, sense for me tricky... to say this is the top row, this is the bottom row because it gets confusing. So I think it's a lot easier if you go one-on-one -on -one and say this is what your options are because then they know that next time mm -hmm. they can look at their board and they understand what the things are. Having to sit there and be like, okay, so you look for your build action and now you look for your build action. It's going to yeah. be different. It's going to cost you different resources. That was confusing. I would rather go one-on-one -on -one and say this is your faction. This is the mat that you have. This is how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. And then about the other pieces, I think that it it's important to go through what makes you win, um, but I think that's the last thing that you do. Yeah. I think there was it was it was jumbled. I feel like I could do it more coherently next time, but I also you started and then I jumped in because I was feeling anxious about the way that you were doing it. No offense. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Re regardless, it's just. It's one of these things that when you, we've played enough times that it's just like, obviously we know how to play it, so it's not a big deal. But it's, you take things for granted when you sit down and set it up and you go, hmm, actually the more I talk about this, the more it's like I realize how, like, how difficult it yeah. might be to articulate all, because there's so much stuff going. You get sure. through the player boards, good. Now you've got encounters. But now you've got objectives. Now you've got okay, the factory. So now you've got popularity. I think that the other problem that also comes in sometimes when we're teaching games is we're trying to throw in tips. Those should be dropped entirely. That doesn't make any sense to a new user, a new user, a new player because they've never done it before. Sorry, yeah. I'm just slipping into. I know. I was thinking of <laughs> my users at work. Um, it doesn't make any sense to them. There's no point in telling them, "Oh, it's a good idea to do this." No, you need to get them the straight facts about how things work. Mm -hmm. What are the win conditions? Now go. Throughout the game, you can throw in those tips, but being like, oh, well, this is good, and you need to look at the, 
your your player mat is patriotic so you got it you should think about this like that doesn't help someone they're not at that level they just need straight facts about what does what and how you win yeah i i agree with you 90 percent on that i think at the end of the explanation maybe just a custom tip for each person sure to kind of say like this is something you should be not in the middle no that's fine i agree with that um, but it did, we did get through it. And by the end, everyone knew exactly what they were doing. And yeah. I think there were no, there were none of those moments. And this is something that always like, uh, you've been there, I've been there. It's one of these heart sinking moments where somebody or me, uh, or I, excuse me, want to do something. And then you find out, no, you can't do that. And you didn't understand a concept. And it's like, you've been building towards this, like, this is my grand move. And it's, oh no, you can't do that. Cause yeah. this wasn't explained properly or you didn't understand yeah. it. And there's none of that as far as I know. I don't think so. Or the other heartbreaker, you get to the end and you didn't realize X mm. and Y are also win conditions or give you points. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Some sort of like, just really kind of sucks the wind out of an experience yeah. because you didn't quite get it. And I think Scythe is fairly good about that because it's six stars, money do as much as you can and that's like there you go but you also have to explain what gives you money at the end which is your stars your hexes and yeah. your leftover resources which we did talk about we did go through that and it's, it is on the board yeah. but when you're but learning you it's easy. explain it you do have to explain it so um in general it was uh, I, I had a, obviously i had a better time <laughs> than, than other times but i did enjoy and i felt like for the first time i played scythe i really understood or i really had a grasp on what i was doing and i was always moving um, in my opinion, successfully towards my goal. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like you said you were, or I remember you saying you felt like you were spinning your wheels a little bit or you had some trouble. I definitely felt like I wasn't really, I couldn't really get my engine going. It just seemed like I was always hamstringed on um, getting resources. It like never seemed like I had enough resources for the things I wanted to do. Which is so interesting because Kayla's race, their ability or their fashion was their workers can swim across rivers right. and that's something nobody else can do. And I did, but my problem is that I didn't have enough workers and I didn't have a village close enough that I could spawn many workers without also trying to move around and get the other resources I need to do the other things. Mm -hmm. It didn't, um, I mean, there was pros and cons. Obviously I didn't do terribly. I got up there. Mm -hmm. But it just didn't seem... I Maybe I should have done more trading because I had tons of cash. I had tons of money. Yeah, I could have done more trading. so much money. I know. I'm rich. Uh, so it was... I struggled a little bit maybe just because I haven't played that faction before. I didn't really know how to make it work. Mm -hmm. I did like the river walk. Um, so, yeah. It was good. I want to play again. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can play today. Ooh. Two-player scythe. Yes. If you ever want to see something that like zero aggression, two player scythe is just like it's, it's multiplayer euro or multiplayer solitaire. I'm fine with that. Okay. All right, scythe. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a musical break, and we'll be back in a second. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard was the basically the opening sequence from, uh, opening titles according to this, from Blade Runner, the greatest movie ever made. There I said it. <laughs> to, hell, to hell with the haters. They're wrong. I am right, as usual. Um, my favorite movie of all time, and uh, just... Truly, from start to finish, something that is like, if you were if you can make a movie half as good as Blade Runner, I think you've done you've you've done a man's job, as uh, they say at the end of uh, the flick. But um, maybe a person's job. Well, I think in the context of Blade Runner, and man is mankind, a human in this case. But uh, let's not get into too much of that because the sequel recently came out, which was uh, some would say. Uh, <laughs> a bit too late, but I would say not soon enough. Blade Runner 2049, uh, directed by Denis Villeneuve, something along those lines. Kayla, what did you think of Blade Runner 2049? I really enjoyed Blade Runner. I don't necessarily think that the original Blade Runner was the best movie of all time, but that's Be- just me. She just said it, best movie of all time, Blade Runner. <laughs> that's just me. Uh, I thought it was really great. I thought the... The pace of the movie was really good. It's a long movie. It's two hours and 45 minutes or thereabouts. Did not feel that way. I felt like I was engaged throughout the whole movie. I didn't feel like, oh my gosh, where's something better to do? So that was good. Um, this, like, the scenery was amazing. It's all kind of post-apocalyptic almost. <laughs> it's, I don't know, all like snow and fog and well it's clear there's been disasters of yeah either impl- uh, like actual uh, violent actions kind of like implied that i think vegas was hit with a dirty bomb is what they're saying yes and then there's the actual environmental disasters where mm-hmm. obviously sea level levels are through like very very high <laughs> from uh, uh global warming mm-hmm. and also um uh, the various, like, uh, the fact that animals are super rare, trees, mm-hmm. people talk about real wood as being yeah, something that's, like, oh, only the wealthy can yeah. afford actual wood. So I thought Ryan Gosling was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think he's a great actor any day, but he did a great job. <laughs> and Robin, Ryan Gosling. Canadian Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Uh, I thought Robin Wright was also really great. Harrison Ford also, um, he was good. He's broken the streak of coming back to a series or a franchise, whatever you want to describe it as. Although I, don't, I would never call Blade Runner a franchise. Um, let's say uh, m- beloved films that he did a great job in, and then years and years have gone by without anyone touching them, at least including him in them. And then he shows up, and the movies are wretched, like really, really bad. What's an example? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is a movie I I don't think really exists except in the Nightmares of Jack. <laughs> uh, I've seen it. Was so bad that I I walked out wondering what I had just seen. I couldn't believe that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had actually sat down and signed off on this this abomination of a, a sequel. And it's maybe if I watch it again, I wouldn't hate it as much. But it's just I remember watching and thinking, this is terrible. This is really bad. Uh, Force Awakens, garbage, not a good movie, and a waste. Of, like Harrison Ford didn't look like he wanted to be there, and <laughs> it's almost like he. Spoiler: If you haven't seen it, it's almost like he said, "Kill me in this movie, so I don't have to participate in these, these." Unless they're going to do some nonsense, uh, sort of blue Jedi uh, floating thing. Why not? Why not just take a dump on the series lore a bit more? But uh, so, 
uh, Harrison Ford, spoiler alert, shows up in, in the sequel to Blade, <laughs> Blade Runner, even though you're going to wait two hours for it. So don't be sitting there and just twiddling your thumbs waiting for Indiana Jones to uh, like whip him way, his way into the movie. But um, he was great, man. He was fine. Like Yeah, he did fine. Um, he didn't have to do very much, to be honest. No, I think that's part of it. He didn't do much, but stayed alive. Yeah, yeah, that's actually... Had a, a dog? Oh, this gorgeous dog that likes whiskey. So cute. <laughs> that was crazy. I don't know that, if that's healthy for a dog. Uh, I'm Android sure Dungeon Alert, do not feed your dog whiskey because you yeah. saw it in a movie. <laughs> probably not a good idea. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in the movie he didn't actually drink whiskey. It was probably water. You think it was water in the bottle? Well, definitely what the dog well, hold on. Drank. You mean like in real life for the dog? Or yes. do you mean for the movie he was just had water in the, the whiskey bottle and he was I faking mean, him out? In the movie, the dog drank whiskey. Okay. In the filming of the movie, the dog probably drank water. Hmm. Well, we can call it the SPCA. Well, Make sure that the... That's, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. I don't want the SPCA, like, calling the movie up and being like, oh, excuse me. Don't free dogs whiskey. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did not do that because no one would do that. I think even Harrison Ford would say no to that. <laughs> Harrison Ford does not support poisoning dogs on the sets of his movies. Oh, those cute dogs. Um, so I don't think we're going to get into too much of, like, the nitty-gritty of the plot, but um, – and I, I know you're not as you, – you obviously don't love the original as much as I do, but um, if you put them back-to-back, and I know it's been a bit too since you've seen the original, but um, – I think comparing the two, it's a sequel in a good modern sense because what's happened is, um, I'd say that using the phrase soft reboot is something that you can be applying to a lot of these sequels of uh, beloved film series because people, studios are afraid of doing a true sequel to a movie, which is something that um, just fits in with the lore and assumes the audience had seen this recently and they don't have to do as much um, sort of brand rebuilding because you can really look at it as a corporate product. Um, versus, like, let's say, let's go back to a turd we just talked about, Force Awakens. It's a 100% a reboot of New Hope. All the same beats are there, all the same ideas, and you even grab stuff from the other movies, whereas with the Blade Runner 2049, you could argue there's some rebooty elements of it, but they're not They're not turning this into, like, all right, every year there's going to be a new Blade Runner movie and we're going to have different ideas set on different planets and the things going on there. No. I don't even think the movie's done that well financially enough to support that either, which is a shame. It'll make its money back. I don't care. But um, it's a good sequel in that it's it takes the ideas of the first movie, throws 30 years onto them, or 40 years, whatever, and, um, and, and builds an actual sort of mystery into this and an actual story you pay attention to and you actually care about these characters and you care about the, what they're doing and the world they're existing in. And visually, it is just, I think it is unbeatable. If it doesn't, if it doesn't win every sort of technical award possible, it, uh, it, it will, it will, it's a travesty because as far as sound design and um, cinematography, set design, all that stuff, like, and the CG almost feels seamless to me. It's not like you're sitting there and you're watching Shia LaBeouf swinging through vines, uh, chasing Russians, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, maybe on paper sounds great, but when you watch in theater, it's like, this is garbage, this is awful, versus... Later on where it feels like everything, like the, the scenes with Jared Leto's little weird pyramid uh, place, just incredible. A natural evolution from the Tyrell Corporation. I'm not going to get into the whole um, explicit similarities or evolutions from the first film too much, but I can see Kel looking some stuff up on her phone. What are you looking at? So I was just seeing how much it has made so far. It released October 6th in Canada. Uh-huh. Uh, so far it's made $81.9 million In Canada or North US America? Uh, it does not say. I'm going to say overall. I just looked up 
Blade Runner box office. So I'm going to say 81 overall. Oh, man. I, I hope that's not true. Um, <laughs> I can... Well, we'll see. Because its budget was $185 uh, million, dollars, I think, between, somewhere around there, and then double it for their um, advertising budget. There were tons of commercials for it in theaters for a while, which had me hyped as heck, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say still 81 million. Oh, so people go out and watch it, maybe. I don't know where it's been bad. released. That's bad. Um, I don't know if it's been released overseas yet, so maybe that will help. Yeah, you think it'd make a killing in Korea or uh, Japan or in China or all these. This, this, but again, it's two, and a, it's two hours and 45 minutes. It's a long movie, um, and I think... There are parts that, I, like like Kale's saying, I never was bored, but I think you could have made it a little leaner by cutting, trimming down some scenes here and there. Like um, I think the uh, red letter guys really went on about how, um, or talked about the part where he, when uh, these long shots through this abandoned hotel, there's a lot of establishing shots and a lot of establishing scenes where he's, Ryan Gosling's kind of going through this empty place and it's cool, it's really nice. But it almost feels like something you'd save for like the extended edition um, Blu-ray that you'd send out later with the stuff that like really kind of draws out these scenes. Kind of similar to um, uh, the first film, which was infamously cut and redubbed for uh, theatrical release. And then you get the director's cut, which was added a bunch of stuff and it made a, a slower film even slower. But it's still, it's about what you're trying to get out of it. If you're walking into Blade Runner 2049 expecting the thrills, chills, and constant action, you are going to be disappointed. There's action within the first 10 minutes. There are action scenes kind of spread out throughout, but it is not, you're not watching Marvel Avengers. There, there's not superheroes colliding with each other and lots of crazy things going on. There's some intense fights. There's some very violent scenes throughout the movie. It is it is a hard, restricted, uh, mm -hmm. hard R movie, um, but it, it deserves every second of it. And I think um, the, I, probably the running time is what's killing this mm. this movie because people look at it and they say, what do you want to do tonight, honey? Oh, let's see Blade Runner 249. And they look at it, two hours, 45, oh, I don't have three hours to sit in the theater. I'll be bored. Yeah. So It's unfortunate that no one can really sit longer than two hours or we've gotten to the point in, I mean, this is a bigger thing than mm. Blade Runner, but we've gotten to the point in our lives where people don't want to sit for three hours without looking at their phones, uh. which um, we definitely saw that during that movie. Yeah. So I definitely saw someone open their phone. Yeah, and it's it's I get it. Maybe you're not enthr you're enthralled by this this flick. But um, respect the people around you. Respect people. That's a general consideration. Yeah. Um, I do think people should go see this movie. I thought it was great, even for someone who doesn't necessarily you know. I mean, Bla the first Blade Runner was great. Mm -hmm. I think this movie is excellent. Again, it goes by super fast. The fact that it's only made 81 million is really actually sad. I want so to check those numbers. Should, I can't believe I'm it. I'm telling you, it's it's real. I just looked at a real in-depth analysis of it. Was that North America? Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe the worldwide is a bit better. Maybe. Maybe. Sure. Um, <sighs> hopefully it is because it's a great movie. It got, what, five stars from the National Post? The Post Nothing gets, gets five, I've gets never five seen, stars. I have not seen a five star from the Post in a long mm -hmm. time except for a really artsy-fartsy movie that you'd see the Bell Lightbox. And yeah. it's probably really good, but it's not mm -hmm. like something that's going to be the th that you can drive yeah. to the Pergola or the uh, Cineplex down on Woodlawn. Yeah. Uh -uh. And it's getting really great reviews. People it, should go watch it. It's incredible. And the, the acting And no, is, we're not paid for this. No, this no. It's free I, advertising. We did not come out of the $300 million <laughs> advertising budget. I wish somebody was paying me to advertise this movie because it'd be easy. You don't have to. Yeah. I believe in this film and it, it's really something else. And everyone involved in it should be extremely pleased with themselves. All the acting is great. When I was, I was worried a little bit because it's very clean compared to the original, which has this, it's very dark. 
dark, dark, and it's cluttered, and it really grabs this aesthetic of what they imagined uh, the future would look like, established, building upon the technology available in the 80s, but also adding their own twist to it. They, there was this great essay called um, um, Future Imperfect, and I believe Sid Mead is the guy who, the set designer, or the visual designer for the film, and how just grabbing technology and evolving upon it, but not making it super fancy. Not everything looks like holographic and touch panels and all these things. It, it was a, a, you could see the, the jump from the technology that exists at the time they were making the movie into the future that they imagined, and also the uh, ethnic and cultural concerns or, uh, or visions of the future based on Los Angeles in the 80s with uh, they imagine, the Japanese were going to take over the world, essentially, just Japanese corporations and Japanese all over the place. So... Um, uh, whereas the new one, it's very clean in, in that you can look at it and imagine, okay, 30 years after this, maybe they've cleaned up some of the, um, the clutter, but the technology still is not insane. It's not like you're looking at that and going, oh, that's impossible. There's no way. They've got drones. They've got kind of uh, pictures or TV uh, or face videos in their cars and things. But beyond that, it's like the flying car is probably the fanciest thing in the, the flick. Uh, or maybe I'm missing a couple of things, but they're, and they're still shooting guns. They don't have lasers. And uh, the, the classic Harrison Ford Blade Runner pistol makes a great reappearance. I'm always happy when I see that. And, uh, um, but it is the, the, I feel like I'm talking too much about the visual, the look of the movie, but that's what's going to pull people in. And I think that's what keeps you going on this ride. The, um, and like you're saying, Robin Wright is great. Uh, Harrison Ford's great. Ryan Gosling's yeah. great. Every, uh, Jared Leto, who I was worried about when I saw in the, the trailers, he was, was like, I see Jared Leto and I get a little nervous because he's, he's done, he's been in some of my favorite movies. But he's also one of these guys, it's like, ah, I kind of get irritated just looking at you. <laughs> and, but he was fine in this. He plays a, a, a really, like this, uh, like an Old Testament god, just this monster that wants to just go ahead and do whatever he wants. And uh, played very well and very spooky looking guy. Anyway, in case you didn't get, get the impression, I think we're both fond of the movie. I think we both appreciate everything it's doing and uh, everything that you can see in there. Um, gets an endorsement from me. Endorsement from you? Yes. Double Definitely. endorsements. Joel, if he was here, would probably be saying uh, some nice things about it as well. He told me he loved it. He loved it. And uh, I think, uh, and I, I'm not sure if Sam would say the same thing. She, I don't think she's seen the original or feels as strongly she about it. She has not seen the original. So I feel like if you haven't seen the original, maybe it's, I feel like it it, kind of, it does stand alone. It should stand on its own. But yeah. I think that watching the original would maybe make you feel a little bit more connected to it, but... I think I probably slept through a little bit of the original. I'm still fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's not the fastest movie. And um, I don't know if I'd recommend this movie to my parents, for example. I think there's no way in hell mom would enjoy this. Dad might get off on mm -hmm. it, but it's just two hours and 45 minutes. It'd be tough. I think I, I could see dad sleeping through parts of it. It's just a long time to ask somebody to sit down and... If, I mean, uh, unfortunately, that's one of its big criticisms right now is, or one of the big reasons people think it is not doing well at the box office is because it's so long, but it does not feel that long. Well, but what did, I'd like to compare, and I don't have numbers off the top of my head, top of my head but what uh, Hateful Eight, I think it made a lot of money, mm -hmm. and that was even longer than this. I think Hateful Eight was three hours long. Hateful Eight was real long. But it also, again, a movie, What? Um, it's okay if a movie is long. If mm -hmm. they have a lot to, uh, a lot to say, I don't think that's... And that's, that's a it. problem. Exactly. And that's it. You, f you don't want to see something which is, it feels like three hours long. It feels like three hours long because there's nothing in it. It's just, yeah. it's very sort of, I don't know, um, the word masturbatory is right, but it's just, it feels like you could just cut down on things. Yeah. You're, you're including them there for no reason. 
and it's just dragging things out. Right. And that's a failure mm-hmm. of the director. That's a pacing issue. Well, it's a pacing issue. It's an also an editing issue. You should cut out all that crap. Yeah. So this this movie was well directed. I think it everything that was in the movie should be in there. I don't. There's nothing that I can remember that should not have been there. Yeah. And just maybe uh, yeah. a couple of things. Maybe just like trim slightly but nothing you're like oh I didn't need to see that scene I didn't need that I'd say the only thing I didn't like about Blade Runner was that there were a couple times when I felt like they didn't trust the audience they didn't respect me to put pieces together and by that I mean they without getting any spoilers there are scenes where they go back and they play voiceovers or they show clips from previously in the movie where it's like really spelling out solutions to the mystery for you which the first one doesn't bother with or the first movie and because partially because there's not a huge mystery in the first movie uh, but for this one, there actually are things you're solving or thinking about, but it doesn't trust me as a viewer to kind of put it together. So you have to have these explicit scenes with Ryan Gosling kind of staring in the distance and going, hmm, yes, and then hearing voiceovers of and talking about and seeing scenes of things as they link the the overarching ideas together, which I didn't need. You you can if I'm confused, that's right. I'll ask my the person sitting next to me. But I wasn't confused. It's you. It's really not that difficult mm-hmm. to put things together. And I'm not talking about an elaborate mystery. This isn't some like like what was that intolerable vice, which was I, I still walked away from thinking what did I just watch? I have no idea what the mystery was here. But uh, um, I'd say that was the only thing that I just could have cut away. What are you looking on your phone? Do you see the uh, box office uh, gross for Hateful Eight? Okay, so I was doing a couple of box office looks just at a few movies that uh-huh. um, not necessarily specifically comparable to Blade Runner, but just as a comparison number-wise on different movies that have been coming out. So Hateful Eight, it came out in 2015. Its box office was $155 million. Okay. Hateful Eight is a great movie. Again, probably too long. It's probably maybe just beyond some people. Yeah, like yeah. Maybe that's a problem with Blade Runner. People don't feel like it's super accessible. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, so they did 155, um, but again, who knows where Blade Runner will end up at the end of their run? Mm-hmm. Um, it, which has come out, yeah, uh, 604 million. So, yeah, so it, okay. it is an unqualified success. Okay, one more comparison uh-huh. just for fun. Trolls, the Justin Timberlake movie. Uh, I think so. Yeah, 2016, last year, 344 million. <laughs> Does Trolls really deserve more money than Blade Runner? I don't think so. No, and but. Y- colorful kids movie but based on a toy line that can be sold overseas for very little problems and uh, yeah it's no surprise yeah I mean movies like that do great but again the original Blade Runner flop not a success when it came out and became a legendary film that everyone many people influenced by and references and video games it just it became a like a cultural icon or something that people would think about and a lot of people like to think that uh, Neuromancer the like the um, definitive cyberpunk novel is based on, but I believe Bill Gibson said that he's more influenced by Alien, another Ridley Scott film, but uses similar technology, similar looks and aesthetics uh, to that, but just a little aside, but um, Blade Runner 2049, I would say go out of your way to see it if you're remotely interested in the idea, remotely interested in good movies, and you're in good shape, but uh, if you can't stomach sitting in a theater for three hours, then it might not be for you, especially if you can't look at your phone uh, for more than, I don't know, half an hour at a time because you might miss some valuable sort of Facebook notification or something along those lines. That careful drum and bass drum uh, indicates that we are at the end of another episode of Android's Dungeon. Blade Runner, Scythe. I'm Jack. I'm Kayla. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to CFR, you, CFRC, 
CFRU, CFRC is in Kingston. You can listen to that too, but CFRU is a good one. Thank you.